chapter 28. Uh, you can open your Bibles there, and it's really the, the first 10 verses of this chapter tell us what happened on the island of Malta when uh, Paul was there for, for three months. And, and as you're turning there, I want us to, to get there, if you will. I want to remind us of our, our message last week uh, that just got Paul there through this, uh, through this road and through this trial in which he was there. In uh, Acts chapter 19 and verse 21, we see this verse where, where Paul was really thinking about what, um, can I just, you want me to just go on this mic? What, what do you want me to do? I, I'm okay? You guys, does it sound really loud to you? How, it's too loud for how many of you? Yeah. <clears throat> so how about this? Is this a little better? Maybe that's a little better. All right. Well, we'll, I'll try to carry on. You guys can figure it out in the back. <clears throat> anyway, Acts chapter 19 and verse 20 is when, uh, is when Paul resolved in his heart what his, his next plan was going to be. He laid out his plans for the future. And it says, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. So he was in Ephesus. He's going to go back over Macedonia and Achaia. And then he's going to go through to Jerusalem. And then he was going to head off to Rome. That was Acts chapter 19, verse 21. We see that up there on the screen. And then in verse chapter 20, we see Paul traveling to Macedonia and Achaia. And in chapter 21, we see Paul traveling to Jerusalem. And when Paul was in Jerusalem, right, he was falsely accused by the Jews. His, his life was at stake. But the Lord appeared to Paul. And you can read that in, in, in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The Lord stood by him and said, yes, yes, your life is in peril, but take courage. Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify to me in Rome. So he's been Macedonian Achaia, he's been to Jerusalem, he says, you must testify to me in Rome, of me in Rome. And in these two verses, really, we see the, the mind of a man planning his way and the Lord directing his steps. And, and in these two cases, God's plan and man's plan converge. Paul's plan was to, to get to Rome, and indeed the Lord was assuring him, yes, you will arrive in Rome to be a witness for Jesus. Last week in Acts chapter 27, we saw Paul begin his travel on the way to Rome on that difficult sea voyage. And I just, again, want to remind you of this map of where we are. Paul was in Jerusalem and then taken for his safety to Caesarea. And in Caesarea, then he boarded a ship, and he was a prisoner at this time, going to stand in Rome as a prisoner before the Roman emperor. And he boarded a ship and embarked along the coast, and he landed up there in Sidon the next day. And they barked there, and they were there for a few days. And then they embarked again, and eventually they found their way to Myra, which is right there on the southern coast of what's called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And... Um, um, then they, they went out to sea again, and because of the difficult winds, they ended up in Canidus. Uh, and, and again, they, they were, were forced to land at this place, but they, they decided then to embark again as they got to get way up then to Italy. And, but because of the winds, they were forced to sail under the lee of Crete, and they landed at a place called Fair Havens. Um, so right there is a, is a good place to kind of land, but there was really no port there. The weather's turning bad. Um, the harbor in Fair Havens wasn't enough to endure the winter, and so what they did was they, they embarked hoping just to go right, right on over, right up to Phoenicia, is right where they go, just kind of right along the edge of, uh, of the island right there. It wasn't, wasn't really far, it was just across the island. However, the winds were so bad 
that they never made it to Phoenix. In, in fact, they were pushed out into the open sea where they're violently tossed to and fro with this big storm. And the storm was so bad that they threw their cargo over the ship in order to lighten the load. But the storm worsened. And we read in Acts chapter 27 and verse 20 that when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, there was no small tempest laid upon us. All our hope for being saved was lost. Yet Paul had reason to hope. He had promised the Lord would help him arrive in Rome because there was a night in which an angel appeared to him and said in Acts chapter 27 and verse 24, Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. You must stand before... In other words, right? God has promised that you will testify before the emperor in Rome. And that promise, it, it, it still stands. You will, you will be there. And to make a long story short, in the providence of God, the, this lost at sea ship, right, um, finally made its way, um, on, on its way, it finally made its way to an island, okay? Hang on, I'm having a little problems with my notes here, just a second, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. You don't see this, but I'm, I'm having problems, here we go. So, the long last, the promise still stands. The ship is going to survive. You're going to make it to, to Rome. And so approaching this island, right? This, this island, they didn't even know what it was. They determined the best way in which they're going to survive is to take this ship and to run it aground. Just because they had no other hope, just at least get to the ground. Like just grasp that ground is what they were longing to do. And this was the island that they came to, the island of Malta. And we, we pick up the story in Acts chapter 27, verse 39. I just want to read it for you. It's a, the best way I know to summarize. It says, Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land. <clears throat> so they, had all, they were out in the sea. They didn't know where they were going. And they went to this little dot of a land of Malta. <clears throat> they didn't know it at the time. But they saw that there was a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. And so they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, and then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But they struck a reef, and they ran the vessel aground, the bow stuck, remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, right, under divine providence, because Paul was going to make it to Rome... He kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that all those who could swim to jump overboard first to make it to land and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought to safely to the land. So I was pointing out in my study this week that this is probably the, the time that surfing is mentioned in the Bible. Um, when they're on here and right, they're, they're riding the wake into the land and some may have been bodyboarding maybe, but some of them may have dared to stand up top and, and float on the, the whatever pieces of the ship that they had. We don't exactly know. But the end is it, that all 276 passengers on board the ship were saved, exactly as the angel had told Paul. And we find in Acts chapter 28 verse 1 that, that only after the shipwreck did Paul and his traveling companions learn that the name of the island was Malta. You can see that there, Acts chapter 28 and verse 1, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Now, Malta is still an island today. It's, a, it's really a, a small island. In fact, right, looks kind of small on the map, just a little, little dot, like you can barely even see the shape of Malta. But here's a close-up I pulled up from Google Maps. Here's a, a close-up of what Malta uh, looks like. Um, 
This Malta is part of uh, an archipelago. Is that what it's called? I didn't, that's a new word for me this week. But it's kind of a, a several islands all tied together. Uh, Malta, is, Malta is properly the biggest of the islands. Uh, measured 27 miles across and 9 miles thick, if you will, 9 miles wide. To give you some perspective, here is Malta on the Rockford area. I just thought that like, like, like maybe that would, would give you a little bit of perspective. It's not very big. I mean, you can walk across the whole island 17 miles within a day easy. Right? You, you can walk where we are in Loves Park, uh, down south, down to New Milford in a day easy. Right? You get down there and you, you can do that. It's not very big, yet today it's densely populated. 400,000 people live on the island. makes it one of the most densely populated countries in the world. In our text today... Matthew chapter, Acts chapter 28, 1 through 10, we're going to tell us what happened during these three months that Paul was on this island. So let, let's, let's read. Here we go. Acts 28, verse 1. And after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and so saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, he was a god. That is humorous. All right, let's try this again. They, they changed their minds and said, he was a god. <laughs> yeah. How fickle people are. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief men, man of that island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put it on board whatever we needed. The title of my message this morning is Miracles in Malta, because that's what we see in our text. We see Paul bitten by a venomous snake and not dying. It's miraculous that he lived. Uh, we see Publius being healed instantly from fever and dysentery, right right at the moment when Paul prayed. It's a miracle. And furthermore, we see numerous other healings in our text as well, and I'm calling them miracles in Malta. So let's dig into our first point this morning. I'm calling it this, save from the snake. In these six verses, verses one through six, we see Paul bitten by a deadly snake. It's identified here as a, a viper, but he's, he's not dying. In other words, right, God, I believe, saved him miraculously from the snake. Again, right, we come back to verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. And verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us because it had begun to rain and was cold. Remember, Paul and his passengers um, had just been on the ship that had come through a storm, right? And then they arrived right here on this island. It had been cloudy for days, and 
They, they navigated by the stars, but without the stars or the, the sun even by the day, they had no idea where they were. They had no idea even what this island was or, or where it was. All they knew that they saw this beach and running their ship on this beach was a, a clear-cut way to save them from the storm. And their ship broke up on the rocks. Many of those in the ship swam to shore. And if you remember, this is when winter was setting in. The, the feast, right, the, the Yom Kippur had already passed and it was just on the edge of the, whether it's safe even to sail or not. Paul said, don't sail. And they went ahead and sailed and then they got in this big storm. They, they shouldn't have been out there. It was wintertime, so it's starting to get cold. And they had originally, right, going to stay on at Phoenix on the island of Crete. And yet contrary winds pushed them hundreds of miles off course into the open sea, into this cold. Like, how many of you like rain when it's in the winter? It is awful. It is like especially cold. And that's what they faced here, especially cold. And the ship came in from the cold water, and it was still raining. And these, these people who'd come ashore were all wet, dripping wet from the, the cold winter rain and ocean. And those on the island demonstrated their kindness for those on the ship, really caring for their needs. In fact, Luke tells us in verse 2 that they demonstrated unusual kindness. And caring for these people. The Greek word here, translated unusual kindness, I, I trust you've heard it before, is philanthropion. Right? We get the word uh, philanthropy from it. Philos means love and anthropos means man. A love of man. And we usually use this word to describe some, some big, donor, big donations from some ultra-rich people. Whether it's some endowment for a college or some financial contributions to a hospital or some giant grant research for healthcare or something like that. We normally think of it philanthropy on the long, large scale, millions and billions of dollars where the one giving is just giving his money. Really, maybe not him or her, right? Maybe not so hands-on involved. But these islanders were showing great philanthropy, loving of men by getting their hands dirty and really helping a group of people in need. If you remember, there are 276 people aboard this ship it's a large group of people just sort of to, to show up on the beach, and you've got to, like, take care of them. Um, but these natives had compassion on them and helped them in their need. They were cold and wet, not only from the swim, but also from the rain that was coming down. And really, the best I can compare to this is, um, is to what's happening in our country today. Immigrants are coming off the southern border in Mexico, um, and they're in great need. They don't have anything except the clothes on their back. And they're, they're being bused even to cities uh, in the north to take care of them. And we've heard politically just how the burden that this is. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm just trying to describe what's happening here. We've got 276 people just show up on your island. And like, how are you going to take care of them? Are you going to shun them? Are you going to attack them? Or are you going to care for them? And these people on the island cared for them. To kindle the fire, to warm them up. And such is the common grace of God to men. And, and as we shall see, these men are not Christians. They are not God-fearers. In, in fact, they're called, literally in the Greek text, these are barbarians. Okay, Now, what, what, what they meant back then by barbarian is different than we mean, but it, it's not quite as bad as it might, might seem. They just simply mean they were uncultured. They, they didn't speak Greek. Is, is what they were. They, they certainly built a fire and they had their infrastructure around and they were, were fine and um, civilized. They, they just uh, weren't very were cultured in terms of the way of the Roman world, the Roman Empire, right? There was a little bit of a language barrier, but they were kind to Paul and helped those who landed upon the island. And I just like, want to make a point here. Just with all that we know, the Bible speaks about sin and our own lost state 
and how we're dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to respond to to God apart from the Spirit of God, which is very true. Let us never think that non-Christians are so steeped in sin that they're incapable of kindness. We see these, these uncultured people caring deeply for the people upon the shore. And, and, and if you have non-Christian friends, I trust you do, many of my non-Christian friends are genuinely kind to many people. Okay? But they may be dull to the things of God, and, and maybe their kindness is, is external, and, and maybe it's only just temporary, but it's not from the heart, certainly. But non-Christians often are, are very kind, oftentimes even kinder than Christians are. They, they don't understand truth, and so they just kind of like, whatever. Anyway, just, just be encouraged by that, and just see and understand and, and embrace that, and embrace kindness that comes your way from non-Christians. Anyway, these non-Christians build a fire for those who are just shipwrecked, and uh, it looks like many pitched in to help. In verse 3, we see Paul pitching in to help. When Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks, they put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Unfortunately, here's Paul. He's, he's gathering these sticks. And he, and he didn't just gather the sticks. Along with the sticks and the, these long things, there's also a snake in there. And, and, and apparently, right, see, he had these, these long sticks. He's carrying them in a bundle and this snake, which kind of looks like a stick. As, as the snake started feeling the heat of, um, of, of the fire, as he's about to throw it on, the snake said, I don't want to go in there. And he bit and latched onto his hand, and he fastened it there. And, and the idea is, is even like he's, he's got it there, and it's, it's dangling from, from his hand. The snake is. I mean, exactly as that little picture it is. He's like dangling there. And, and, but this is not good. All right, just in case you were wondering, this is not good. Uh, but it dangled long enough for the natives to see what's happening. And we see the reaction there in verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped the sea, though he's swum to shore, and though he's, he's wet and he's soaked, yet justice has not allowed him to live. Now this kind of gives you an idea of what kind of snake this was. It was a dangerous, deadly viper. It's injected its venom right there into Paul's hand. Now, now today, there, there are no such snakes on the island of Malta. Right, The, the dense population has removed them from the island. And Bible critics are quick to jump on and say, oh, well, look, there's no snakes on the island today. Like, no doubt, the people have driven the snakes out of the island. But these natives knew what kind of snake it was, even if we don't, right? Because we can't go there and research what kind it was. And they knew how dangerous this type of of viper would be. They concluded that this bite from the viper viper would prove to be fatal. And, And they concluded, by the way, this was no accidental viper either. They said to one another, verse 4, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now those on the island right, had no doubt of seeing others with snake bites. Right? They, they had seen children playing by the bushes, often bitten, bitten by vipers, only to die a short time later. They had, had seen them, like full-grown men, walking along the bushes in their sandals and being bitten by vipers and, and uh, dying quickly thereafter. And Paul was given the same death sentence. They, they, they said to one another, those who escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Right? Justice has, has, has got him, returned to him. Now, did you notice here, I'm not sure you did, that justice is capitalized? How many of you noticed that before I said this? Maybe a few of you. If you're really observant, right? Justice is capitalized. 
Now, in the Greek text, right, there's no capitalization. In fact, early manuscripts, right, have, have all of the letters capitalized. So there's not this, this variation. So capitalization here is an interpretation. If you have an ESV Bible, you go down to your little note and it will say, or lowercase justice. Or if you have the New American Standard, it's the opposite. In the text, they said, well, just, lowercase justice. And then in the note, it says capital J, justice. And so it's an interpretation, whether it's justice just in, in general, say like, like karma, if you will, or whether it's capital J, justice, referring to the, this goddess that they had, this goddess of justice who was active and knowing that Paul right, was this murderer and he was due for punishment. So whatever way, right, they were expecting Paul to die. They saw it as justice. And they concluded that Paul was a murderer. He escaped from the sea, but he can't run from justice. And how ironic is it that Paul was a murderer? Though no evidence he actually killed someone or thrusting a sword into someone, uh, he still consented with the death of Stephen, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And he confessed to the Jewish mob in Jerusalem, Acts 22, verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Persecuting the way to the death. Bringing people, right? If you're worshiping Jesus, let's come in. I'm going to take you. And you need to, you need to die for your heresy. And so, he had this snake. He said he's going to die because it's this dangerous viper. They'd seen many people die of this before. They interpreted it to say justice is, is after this guy. And they waited him for to die. Now, dying from a snake bite, in case you don't know, is not a pleasant experience. Depending upon the, the type of viper, the amount of venom injected, your own health and immune response, um, symptoms can vary. That's kind of like a commercial, right? Take this drug, but well, symptoms may vary. Um, there can be nausea, vomiting, dizziness, difficulty breathing, almost always swelling at the site. There are times when the venom can, can bring damage to internal organism, organs, um, leading them to bleed or kidney favor, failure, or respiratory failure, or heart stoppage. It almost seemed like they were expecting him just to drop dead at any moment with this particular kind of poison. And they watched. And they're watched. They were expecting him to swell up and suddenly fall dead. But that's not what happened. Look, look at verse 5. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, of course, this is exactly what we would have expected to happen, that Paul experienced no harm. Paul was this, had this promise of the Lord that he would arrive in Rome. He was promised from God that you must go there. You must be my witness to those in Rome, confirmed by this angel who was with him on the ship. And no mere snake, snake bite was going to prevent Paul from arriving safely in Rome. That's exactly what Paul would have expected as well. He knew that he was immortal until he arrived in Rome. How fun would that have been? To be immortal before you arrive, like, I'm going to get there. Like snake bites, right? Be damned. Like, I don't care. I'm going to be fine. And just by way of application, know that you're just like Paul. Immortal until God is done with you. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a word from the Lord to know how long that is. Uh, and, but we can rest confident that God has His hands upon our lives. That He's got our future planned for us. Isaiah 46 says, I know the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. 
declaring what they will be, saying, I will accomplish all my purpose. I will bring it to pass. Isaiah 41, verse 10 is one of those go-to promises we can turn, right? When we, when we fear the future, what it holds. Fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I don't think that Paul was scared one bit from this snake bite. But that wasn't the expectation of the natives. Verse 6 says this, that they were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. Apparently that's what this viper does. Swell up right we are, suddenly, boom. Right? Done. But when they'd waited a long time, and we don't know what a long time is, I would guess a couple hours probably in the context here, they saw no misfortune come to him and they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, does that sound familiar? Paul coming into a place and doing something, experiencing something, and then all of a sudden saying, oh, he's a god. Sounds a lot like what happened in, in Lystra during his first missionary journey. I'm not sure if you remember this. It's in Acts chapter 14. He'd, he'd come with the intent of preaching the gospel to this town in Lystra. He'd just come from Iconium, and he was there in, in Lystra, and he encountered a man who was seated in the square. Acts chapter 14 and following just says this, that this man could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing he had been faith to be made well. He said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Here was a miracle that Paul did. This man that was notorious in that town for being this, this cripple, he heals him. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices saying in Lyconium, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was their chief speaker. One miracle was enough to sway the crowds at Lystra. And one miracle here, being saved from the snake, is enough to sway these natives in Malta as well. Now in Lystra, right, things turned bad pretty quickly. Um, those in Lystra began worshiping right, Paul and Barnabas, which Paul then responded by preaching to them the gospel. Acts chapter 14, 15. Being worshipped in Paul. They tried to stop him. They said, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we preach the gospel to you that you would turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then Paul begins to describe the character of God. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, and yet he didn't leave himself without a witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, right? Trying to preach them of the, the goodness of God and, and eventually getting to the coming of Jesus and how Jesus was the one which they need to believe in. But even these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. It was only when the people came from Iconium, where Paul had, had come, persuaded the crowds right, to, to turn away from Paul and Barnabas. And so they, in a moment's notice, stoned Paul and left him for dead outside the city. But we get a sense that things went different here in, in Malta. We see my, my next point here. We've seen Paul saved from the snake, and now we see those on the island delivered from their diseases. And we see the miracle that Paul performed with Publius, the, the chief man of the island, in verse 7. He says, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And again, you see the kindness of these pagan people. In this case, it was the chief man of the island who brought Paul and his friends into his home. 
Now, if you remember, Paul was traveling with at least three people. It was Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. You can read that back in Acts chapter 27, verse 2. And, and I'm just trying to think, why, why did Paul bring these men into his home? Wouldn't it have been much more natural to, to bring in the, the, the captain of the ship or maybe the centurion who was decked out in his Roman garb? Or you, know, you, you begin talking, who are the most important people? And it's interesting that a prisoner was the most important one to take into his house. I mean, of all the 276 people on the ship, why? Well, I think it all had to do with this miracle of Paul not dying. Right? Paul was the obvious choice, because apparently like, he had some powers that, that the captain of the ship... I mean, the captain of the ship was a bad captain. <laughs> he crashed the ship. And the centurion didn't really have a lot of power. He, he was like a, a foreign policeman in this uh, foreign city. He didn't have the power, but boy, Paul did. And so he chose to take Paul and his friends in, and he hosted them for three days. Um, I'm not sure whether three days is an accident or not, but you know Ben Franklin, what he says about uh, visitors right? and fish. They both stink in three days is what Benjamin Franklin says here. But they were three days, and he says, um, <clears throat> I, I think that's, we can only assume that's how long it took for Paul to secure some shelter on the island or the, the people helped setting up shelter, unexpected shelter for 276 people. And it was really a good choice on part of the chief of the island because, uh, because Paul healed his father. It's something the captain of the ship or the centurion wouldn't have been powerless to do. We read about this healing in verse 8. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. Now somehow in the, the course of conversation with Paul, right, the, chief pre, the, the chief of this, uh, not the chief priest, the, the chief man of this island, uh, told Paul about his father who was sick. And it told about how he was sick with fever and dysentery. Now, many commentators say that this is Malta fever. After all, this is on Malta, the island, which is also called Mediterranean fever, or the, technically it's brucellosis. Brucellosis? Do you know that, Brian? Is Brian here? He's just gone. No. He's, he's with Children's Church. All right. Bru, bru, brucellosis. It's basically the... Uh, the illness you get through unpasteurized milk of goats, common in the Mediterranean, <clears throat> common on Malta. Um, we don't know exactly whether that was the case or not, but we do know that fever and dysentery is not pleasant. Right? You're in bed, you're lethargic, you hardly eat, you're burning up, and yet you're freezing cold, and you've got liquids coming out of both ends of you, and you're miserable, and you could easily die. From such an ailment. In those days, I'm sure people died. You can't go to the hospital and get an IV and get some fluids in you. You lose your fluids and you can easily succumb to this. But Paul went to visit the father of Publius. He laid his hands on him and prayed for him and he was healed. Clearly it was a miracle that God responded to Paul's prayer of faith. And it appeared like there's this direct correlation to Paul and his praying and this man in his healing, so the chief saw that clearly. Like, not only does Paul have power over vipers and not dying from vipers, but he also has power to heal. And, and soon word gets out, and the, the healing power of the, the one who's come to visit them. And in verse 9, just even describes, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They set up this little hospital, if you will. And one could have easily, right, in the small island, right, 
find this man who can heal with a prayer. It would have been easy. Within a day, right, you could have walked to Paul. If Paul was in the middle of the island, I mean, it would have been just a, an hour or two, like the longest walk you'd have would be very short. And again, we don't know much about these healings that took place. Whether Paul was, was taking all of them in, placing his hands on every single one, and, and praying, and, and God, by His sovereign grace, helped heal every single one. Or, or maybe it was Luke able to lend his medical expertise with some of the illnesses. I mean, after all, he was a physician, right? cured through some medical means, not merely through the supernatural. Maybe there's a combination of both. I think a lot of it was supernatural, like to heal everybody who comes. Reminds us again of the supernatural, the healing power of God. God can heal. God can heal. Maybe he can't heal on command or doesn't heal on command today like he did with Paul. This is a gospel going out to a new place the first time, but certainly God can heal. And as he does here, he, the people were delivered from their diseases. And we read in verse 9, right, really get the sense that disease was, was banished from the island while Paul was there. Like disease, all gone. Nobody's sick. On the island. Because if you're sick, you just go to Paul. And, and Paul, by the way, was there three months. We see that in verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship. But these healings, no doubt, gave Paul the opportunity to preach the gospel to those who were on the island. Right? The text says nothing about Paul preaching. But wherever he went, he was always eager to preach the gospel. In fact, even when he wrote the letter to Romans, he said, I want to be with you. Romans chapter 1, verse 15, and preach the gospel to you, for I am eager to preach the gospel to you, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God has been manifested from faith to faith. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So if he was so eager to get to Rome to preach the gospel to the church in Rome, certainly he was here in Malta for three months eager to preach the gospel. And as he was interacting with so many natives, healing so many on the island, he, he certainly would have used the healing as opportunities to preach Jesus. Jesus is your hope. I can heal you. This is wonderful. But I can't forgive your sins. I can't heal your sins. You need to cry out to Jesus. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And I'm certain that as Paul was Healing people. He wasn't taking glory to himself like Nebuchadnezzar said, oh, look at the great Babylon which I've made by the power of my majesty. No, he's not saying, oh, look at how good and strong I am. I can heal you. No, Paul clearly understood that it was the power of God to heal through Paul. And any relief that Paul or Luke might give to those natives was only temporary. The sicknesses would help, but maybe even when they left, the sicknesses would come back. They'd eventually die, every single one. The death rate in the world is going about 100% nowadays. It was back then as well. But, but Jesus, Paul could have said, gives permanent relief from our sin. He rose from the dead. He's the one that gives eternal life. And though we die, we'll live again, so believe in Him. Now, we have reason to believe that some on the island believed in Christ. And I, and I say this because of the way that Paul and his friends were sent off. Verse 10. And they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they, they put on board whatever we needed. And here, unlike at Lystra, right, where they proclaimed to be a god, and they said, no, no, don't, don't worship us, and then other people came and they stoned them. Here on this island, apparently there was a great amount of peace and, and honor that developed. I, I love how Simon Kistemacher puts this whole story about verse 10. He says, when Paul and his friends arrived in Malta, they had nothing more than their sea-drenched clothes on their backs. We expect 
that these Maltese brought them numerous gifts of clothing and provisions so they could continue their travels in comfort. In brief, when the time came for Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus to depart, the Maltese had supplied them with everything they needed for the remainder of the journey. Thus, the islanders expressed their appreciation for all that Paul and his friends had done and said while they were guests on Malta. Just what a great picture that is, right? As Paul had served them, and now it came time for them to serve them. How, how like life this is. Paul and Luke loved the people on the island. <clears throat> they gave themselves to them. They served them with their gifts. In this case, their healing abilities. And they were loved in return. See, it wasn't a tit for tat, though. I don't think Paul and Luke were like, oh, we've got to get off this island somehow. What can we do in order to pay these guys so they'll pay us to help get us off the island? I, I don't think it was like that at all. They weren't expecting in return for their labors. But they just, they love these people. And in appreciation, these people love them in return, or they honored them at least in return. And, and they returned in kind with honor, supplying everything they needed for the journey to Rome. And just by way of application, right? I just think here, I just encourage you to be on the same path, right? Love the people of the world. Love like Jesus loved. Jesus loved the lowest of the world. He dwelt with the sinners and loved them and helped them. I just encourage you to love your neighbor, love your coworker, love your unsaved family member, and the Lord will return blessing to you. I think even Proverbs 16, verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You're right with the Lord, even your enemies will be at peace with you. And that's not that these natives on the island were enemies with Paul. They certainly were the gospel when Paul arrived on the island. But Paul made peace with them by loving them and serving them and helping them. And that says, may we do the same. May our reputation be one of love and service to others. And may the Lord bless us in His time and in His way as He did here. Okay, so this point of my message, I just want to step back. Think about this passage as a whole, just as we, as we transition to the, the Lord's Supper. We saw Paul saved by a snake. We saw the people on the island delivered from their diseases. And, and one thing that really struck me about this passage is how Jesus-esque this passage is. I'm not sure if you caught that on the way through. How like Jesus this passage was. Jesus was saved from the snake, right? Jesus delivered people from their diseases. I mean, the, the healing of the, the, the fever of the father of Publius, this is so like it. When, when, when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law's um, fever, Matthew 8, 14 through 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. There it was. Just touched her. Fever gone. She began to serve him. And then that evening, hearing of the miracles, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out their spirits of the word and healed all who were sick. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul. Now, Jesus did that to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. But what, what Paul did on the island was, was like being Jesus to these people as he healed them just the, with the apostolic power to heal and I think of this whole idea about right, being immortal until the day you die. Jesus was immortal until the day he died. How many times, especially in the Gospel of John, did Jesus say, my hour has not yet come? At the wedding of Cana, his mother said, oh, well, we'll do something, Jesus. He said, my hour has not yet come. 
It says in John chapter 7, right, when Jesus was at the feast, he says, many were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? His hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, he, he spoke like antagonistically with the Pharisees as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. In John 12 then, right, he then transitions. He says, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It says in John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. He knew, right, coming into the Lord's Supper, or coming into that last supper where we celebrate the Lord's Supper, my hour's come. I just need to love these disciples clear until the end. Under the life of Jesus, it was under the, the sovereign guidance of God. He was immortal until his hour came. And I can't help but to think of the symbolism of the snake biting Paul. The snake bit Jesus too. But Jesus overcame. Right? In fact, that's the first expression of the, of the gospel in the Bible. Speaking a curse to the, the serpent, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the serpent is going to bruise Jesus on the heel, but Jesus is going to ultimately conquer him. It's all that Satan has. Just this viper bite that is, that is able to be overcome by the power of God. And, and in Jesus' case, it was death on the cross. Right? But that was like a, a, a heel wound because Jesus rose from the dead and conquered serpent, serpent of old, Satan himself. And that's really what we, what we hope when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? Is we, we hope and we trust that it's Jesus who has conquered for us. He's conquered that serpent of old when his time was come and he was laid out on the cross. And so as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're just, Jesus tells us to remember him. And that's what we're going to do here just in, in a little moment. We're going to remember Christ Jesus. Died on the cross for our sins. Risen from the dead for our justification, as Romans 4 says. It's an opportunity, especially just Lent, just every week we're going to do this. And even as, as you look at the Apostle Paul, I mean, this, this wasn't Jesus, but it was Jesus-esque. The one who has the power to heal and the one who conquered the serpent. So let's pray. Father, I, I do pray that these things would be embedded deep in our minds. That we look and reflect that You are a miracle-working God. Maybe not exactly in the way that uh, we see in the time of Jesus, in the times of Paul. Uh, even the vast majority of the Bible doesn't have miracles except the time of Moses and the time of Elijah and Elisha. vast majority of time, miracles aren't happening. God, but this is a time in which miracles were just to demonstrate your power. And Lord, I would pray that as we think about celebrating the Lord's Supper, we, we get to do in a, in a way that we normally don't do, or we do every month or so, God, to remember you by eating and by drinking. And so, Father, I pray, just even as 1 Corinthians 11 says, that we might examine ourselves, that we might take of the supper in a worthy manner. That simply means trusting in you, forsaking our sin. That we might consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, that we too might resist the sin that's come upon us. And so, Lord, I do pray that as we celebrate the supper, may we celebrate it rightly. And I just encourage you all, if there's sin you need to confess, confess your sin. If, if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, don't eat the bread, don't eat the cup. But if you are trusting, 
If you have turned from your sin and you are sensitive to your sin and you long to be freed from your sin, oh, wretched man that I am, who will separate me from my body of this death? This is what Paul said. If that's your longing, if you're confessing sin, you're looking to him for your hope, this may today be a day of encouragement for you. So, Father, be with us and help us as we merely seek to remember you, your death upon the cross for our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.